You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on June 9th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Business and Innovation Q&A. We're doing these every two weeks on Wednesdays and uh, maybe we missed one or two because of some other events that were going on. Anyway, there are a bunch of questions that were left over from previous times. Maybe I can start off by addressing some of those. Mikhail asks, how do you maintain the work-life balance? How do you decide what is more important, a meeting or going to the gym? Well, I'm not a big one for going to the gym, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, in general, one of the things I try to do is, well, let's see. I mean, first of all, in terms of things like, how do I take exercise? Well, the answer is that the first couple of meetings I do every day, I'm taking exercise while I'm doing those meetings. When I can, I walk outside. When uh, I've now decided that I am... I am themed to my normal operating temperatures of 45 degrees Fahrenheit to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. If it's anywhere between those two in that temperature range, I'll walk outside. If it's not, then I'll walk inside with a treadmill and I have a computer set up and so on so that I can type and interact and do phone calls and so on. I, I guess I'm not putting myself through enough exertion that I'm in the can't talk uh, category. And I, I kind of wonder, how often people can tell that I'm walking while I'm doing uh, a meeting versus not. Um, I do know that that I've had consistent trouble with uh, uh, headsets that I use outside where people are like, you're breathing too heavily and stop breathing type thing. But that's a, that's a minor issue. I, I, I do have, I don't usually do video, when I'm walking, but sometimes I do. And I, there was a recent event where people are like, you really should put on video, everybody else has video on. So I said, fine, I'll put on video, I'm, you know, I'm walking, sorry. And uh, that seemed to be, people seemed to think that was kind of cool actually in that particular event. Um, but so, you know, to me that's a, there's no compromise being made there. I'm both getting my very consistent amount of exercise every day and I'm, uh, uh, doing my um, uh, my work at that time. I mean, I, I I have made some effort in some cases when there are meetings where I know I'm going to get kind of uh, uh, heated in the meeting. I try to arrange those to be ones where I'm walking at that time because it's like, particularly on treadmill or something, it's like if I'm getting really heated, I can at least make the treadmill go faster and that way I, I burn off some of my um, uh, frustration or something by walking faster rather than by growling, so to speak. Um, in terms of kind of my, uh, well, the, the other thing to understand about my kind of life is the things that I do for work are things I really like to do. So it isn't the case that uh, I'm saying, oh, you know, do I do this other thing sort of for work or do I do the thing that I do for fun because the work that I do is the stuff that I think is fun, so to speak. Uh, when it comes to kind of uh, my family and other people, you know, I have for many years 
I've kind of carved out the sort of dinner time time as a time when I'm at least uh, in a situation where I can hang out with other people, um, even if maybe, you know, if they have their computers and they're reading things on their computers, I might do that too. But um, at least in theory, uh, that's a time. And, and, you know, if I look at my sort of personal analytics data, I'll see for the last, I don't know, at least 25 years or more, um, this kind of, this stripe between sort of six and 8.30 every day, where there's a lower density, uh, at least of, of activity um, that I'm on my computer and, and things like this. Uh, I think kind of the test, you know, I have four children, they're, they're mostly grown up at this point. Um, and uh, the test when they were younger was always, by the time they're telling me, oh, I've got other things to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like I'm, I'm spending um, uh, enough time with them, so to speak, when, it, when, it's, um, when it's more, I want to spend more time with you. And they're saying, no, 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 I've got other things to do. Thank you very much. Um, the, uh, that, that's sort of a, a test as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, uh, uh, so, I mean, that, that's uh, one thing that I've found is because the things I do are things I like to do, I can do it all the time. I'm not, you know, I, I never watch television. I have traditionally seen one movie per week. Um, and my wife and I pick some, well, she usually picks it actually, the um, uh, sort of some, you know, general movie that you can see in a, in a typical movie theater. And uh, I find that both somewhat relaxing and also uh, it is a way of staying vaguely in touch with kind of what's going on in the kind of uh, general world and so on. And I've, I've, I've found that uh, a nice thing, but I don't spend the time, you know, I, th there's not a lot that I do where I say I'm doing this just for fun I mean, arguably, the thing I'm doing right now and the things I've done with kind of live stream Q&As and so on are an example of something that I do just for fun. Um, I, you know, it, it's um, uh, I, I, I try to arrange the things I do to be things I like to do. So I don't really have the, the work-life balance issue. Um, I, I mean, another thing to say is the other important feature of, of life is, you know, sleeping. And I you know, tend not to economize on that. I've tended to find that whenever I say, uh, and when I was much younger, I did all sorts of little experiments on, oh, can I get by with less sleep? Answer, no, not really. Um, and, you know, I find that if I ever get to a time, and it's probably once every month or two, I'll, I'll for some reason, there'll be some day when I'm kind of tired, and by golly, I'll take a nap for usually 10 minutes or something, and I find that that um, uh, makes me not tired. And I know that if I'm tired and kind of spaced out, my effectiveness at doing almost anything is much lower and it's just not worth it. And I might as well, you know, take the, the nap or whatever and then, um, uh, and then try uh, sort of, uh, you know, continue my, my work more effectively. I mean, I think one of the things that I've noticed as I've gotten older, it's gotten easier to do things like sleep anywhere type thing. Um, and that, uh, uh, that, that's helpful as far as those kinds of things are concerned. Well, let's see. Um, 
Oh boy, there's a question. There are many, many questions here. I want to address many of these. Um, Kotov is asking, could you list all the apps and big app projects you've ever made with brief descriptions? Well, I mean, the gosh, this is a story of my life type thing. Um, big projects I've done. I, I started off doing physics and I did a bunch of, uh, I wrote a whole bunch of physics papers. Most of them were individual, this is about this, this is about this. They weren't sort of mega projects, although they were aggregated in pieces. I worked a lot on, this is in the late 1970s, on quantum chromodynamics, theory of quarks and gluons, and a bunch on cosmology. Um, and uh, that was sort of one bucket of things. The first big project, really big single project I did was a thing called SMP, started in 1979, which was a kind of forerunner of Mathematica, a, um, a system for doing mathematical computation. Uh, SMP stands for Symbolic Manipulation Program. So that pro project became a product. I started a company around it. Um, that was kind of an early 80s type story. Then uh, I, um, I started, uh, sort of went back into doing basic science. These were not, not actually completely sequential. They were somewhat in parallel um, and worked on this whole idea of studying cellular automata as examples of simple computational systems. And that led to a whole bundle of papers, books, all kinds of things. So that was a, the next big bucket of things that, that I did. Um, and uh, uh, that then led me to start a journal and an institute and these kinds of things. This is now mid 1980s. And uh, then uh, starting in 1986, started building Mathematica. And you say, what apps have I built? Well, I built basically one, it's a little bit more than that, but one very big app, which is Mathematica and Wolfram Language, which is now, oh, I don't know how big it is these days, 50 million lines of code at one point, but I, that's many years ago, so I don't know how big it is now. Um, but that's been a, a project and a product that I've been pursuing since 1986. Um, the, uh, the next kind of big thing, big project in my life is this book, New Kind of Science, that I spent 10 years working on from 1991 until 2002. Um, and that's this big 1200 page book that is about to have its 20th anniversary and has been, I would say, rather successful in sort of driving a, a paradigm shift in, uh, in, in science and so on. Um, then after that, the next big project is Wolfram Alpha, which uh, was started around 2004, uh, first appeared in the world 2009. And then that, uh, so that's the next big app, which of course has many tentacles because it has many APIs that are used by lots of large systems in the world. And it also is a consumer thing that's used by lots of people in, in, that, uh, uh, in that way. And then, um, uh, well, then there's Wolfram Language and all the things around that. So, gosh, you know, apps in the sense of mobile apps. There's a Wolfram Alpha app. There's a Wolfram Cloud app. There's a Wolfram Player app. All these I've been uh, involved in, in conceptualizing, at least. And then there are a whole bunch of other apps that we built that were sort of specialized. Uh, Algebra course app, uh, calculus course app. You know, sun, sunburn, 
you know, um, sun exposure app, you know, genealogy apps, all these kinds of things. Those were all derived from the main Wolfram Alpha API. And um, some of those, uh, this, this idea of fragmenting into these sort of special purpose apps, different app stores at different times have had different kind of uh, traditions in terms of how much one does that. And so there's been, at one point there was a move to like have lots of specialized apps for lots of particular things that could be categorized separately. And at other times a move to let's aggregate everything into one app that's basically just the Wolfram Alpha app. But then the other uh, more recent, I don't know whether you count it as an app, but the big thing of the last two years has been this project to find the fundamental theory of physics. Um, I don't know if the universe is an app, then it's an app. Um, but uh, so that that's kind of the, um, the outline summary of my life, I suppose, which uh, the, the bigger picture is that I've sort of been able to alternate between doing basic science and doing technology development. And that's led to kind of uh, an interesting both spiral and tower being built because I do technology development that builds tools. For example, the physics project that I've done now builds on basically 40 years of tool development plus several rounds of basic science development, both in terms of ideas and in terms of intuition and methodology and so on. And I found that this, uh, uh, you might think that the basic science won't feed back into the technology, but it, it keeps on feeding back into the technology. Even this project to find the fundamental theory of physics has led to a formalism, which is very actively, I'm working on understanding how to do distributed computing in a very practical way using that formalism. And that came directly out of studying fundamental physics and something which is a matter of basic science. So that's kind of a, um, uh, um, a theory there. So let's see, so many questions here. I'm going to just pick some at random almost. Yijan is asking, how do you decide your employee's compensation? Uh, interesting question. So I think one thing to say about that is, while certainly we set things up so people are not, you know, it's, it's part of the deal that you can't like go tell everybody how much you get paid. I always want to have the theory that if one day somebody, you know, got hold of information about this or that, you know, compensation level for this or that person, that in the end, nobody would think that the, uh, that the, that the whole collection of compensation levels that there was anything that they would think they were fair levels. They wouldn't say, oh, look at that person. They got paid extra. That was just because somebody liked them more or something. That it should be the case that the sort of full table of compensation levels is something that you can, uh, that you can sort of stand behind and that's fair and that there isn't a lot of stuff there that's all sort of historical. Oh, we had to get this, you know, this person came in at a higher level because they had a competing offer and so this or that, but it isn't really fair given what they've actually done. It should be the case in a perfect world, and I'm not sure that we necessarily have achieved that perfectly, but I think we have a pretty good approximation to that, that in some sense, the complete table of compensation levels is people would consider it fair. Now, what often will happen is people will say, uh, no, not that this is typically the topic of conversation, but I mean, people will say, oh, oh, you know, I do so much more than so-and-so over there. Um, and, you know, so I should be paid a lot more than that person. And it's like, well, actually, you don't really know what so-and-so over there does. You know, you don't really have that way of assessing 
you, you, you know, your value to the company versus their value to the company. Having said all of that, there's a, a certain tendency sometimes for people to say, you know, you'll, you'll see some resume and somebody will say, I need this, you know, some, some stratospheric compensation level. And it's uh, basically, we just kind of move on at that point. I mean, in other words, what we found is that people where they're sort of asking for something above what we consider to be the fair compensation level, it's even if we say, well, we really need this position. It's like, don't hire that person. It, it isn't so much easier and better. Uh, and, and particularly in cases where we don't really know for sure if the person's going to work out much better that you say, look, uh, you know, uh, let, me, let me make another comment actually before it, before it's saying that the thing for me, that's really important and valuable is we want people to work for us who want to work for us. That is if all they want is, you know, the paycheck and that's the only thing they're getting out of the job then, you know, then there's, I don't think we're the place for them, so to speak. You know, we want people who actually, for whatever reason, uh, in terms of the mission that we have, the products that we do, the kind of work we do, the kind of people we have, the kind of environment we provide, we want people who actually actively want to work for us in particular, so to speak, rather than just, well, I could be working for anybody, you know, just give me a paycheck type thing. And so, at some level, one very good test of whether somebody actually wants to work for us in particular is when you're first hiring them, don't offer them that plush salary. Offer them something that is fair, but is definitely on the lower end, so to speak, because you can always increase it later, it, but that's kind of a test. It's, to me, I, I often refer to it as a self-answering question. You know, There's a person where they might be coming in it's some position we haven't necessarily hired for particularly before, and they're asking for something that we consider to be above what we think is probably reasonable, and we'll say, fine, we'll make them an offer that's lower than that, but something that we can immediately justify based on what we can see about this person. Actually, a better example is a person where they might claim they have certain capabilities, but we can see absolutely no evidence of that. We don't know. It might turn out they have those capabilities, but we can't tell. And there's no sort of initial upfront way to tell that. Then, you know, the typical strategy ends up being, look, make them an offer that we think is fair, but it's, you know, it's not plush, so to speak. And if they don't come, then it's kind of a self-answering question. If they do come, great. If it turns out that they perform terrifically, you can always increase the compensation. You know, I would say another thing about, about bringing people in and so on. I like to be in a situation where whatever compensation we're paying is kind of justified by what I can see right now. If somebody says, look, I could do so much more, you know, just pay me more and I'll do more. That's a really, I, I'm, I'm not usually a big one for that scheme. It's like, look, do more. As you do more, we can see you did more, we'll pay you more. But in a situation where it's like, pay me more and then I'll do more, it just doesn't usually end well. Because what ends up happening is that, and one thing I have seen a bunch of times, we certainly try to avoid this, but it can happen, is somebody comes in based on the, what they say they can do, based on certain expectations you have for them, they come in at a high compensation level, and then, as far as I'm concerned, they have much less rope. I mean, they, 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 you know, they have much less 
uh, room to maneuver because you know they're being paid X number of dollars. It's 20% above, 30% above what one kind of thinks is the immediate, yes, the, the person can produce at this level. And then look, they've got, you know, in two or three months, they've got to start producing at that enhanced level to justify that higher salary. Whereas if they came in at a lower salary, it's like, well, look, you know, we can wait longer to, to see what's going to happen. But by the time the, you know, it's sort of things are burning more rapidly, you're burning money more rapidly. It's like, look, if you haven't managed to, you know, hit the ground running in two or three months, it's just not going to work, uh, given that that was, you know, given that you're at this higher salary level. So it's, it's in my experience, it's always better to start at a more modest salary level, not at a, a level where, where it wouldn't satisfy the, is it a fair salary, you know, given that everybody could see the whole list. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's been my experience, at least, that you, that you want to kind of start a bit lower because you want to know the person's coming because they actually want to come to work for your company, not just, oh, I'm going to collect X number of dollars. And, um, and second of all, that that way, when they come in, they've got more room to maneuver in terms of, well, if there are a few missteps in the first few weeks or months or whatever, it's like, well, okay, at least we're not, you know, if, by the time they're coming in as, you know, the senior executive person who is getting paid kind of a, an arm and a leg, it's like, yuck, you, you just got to actually do this immediately, you know, no, no missteps are allowed, so to speak. And, and I think it's much better to let people kind of um, uh, have a bit more time and a bit more freedom to kind of learn and uh, uh, adapt to the culture of the company rather than, you know, the fuse is burning rapidly, you know, you've just got to produce immediately. Um, let's see, let me go back to a few other questions that were asked here. Uh, this is more of a, a sort of personal question here from Zachariah um, saying, uh, they gather that I was a physics prodigy of sorts at least, did I just fall in love with the subject? Did someone encourage me? Uh, no, I pretty much just fell in love with the subject. Um, I had originally been interested in things about space and so on, which was kind of a popular area back in the 1960s. It's popular again now. It's only a, um, whatever it is, a 50-year gap. But, um, uh, and from that, I got interested in physics as sort of a way of understanding kind of the technology and science of that area. And I decided it was interesting. And I have to say, I didn't have a lot of encouragement. In fact, I wouldn't say I had really any encouragement at all from kind of people around me. My, uh, my kind of uh, motivation was internal as it has been for most of the things I've ever done in my life. Um, and I think that's a, it's, a, it's a healthy place to be is this is something I just want to do. I'm gonna go do it. So long as the world will let me do it, it's all good, so to speak, rather than uh, you know, rather than I'm doing this because uh, somebody tells me I should be doing it or whatever else. I have to say in, in my own life, I've done a, quite a lot of mentoring of people and I like to try to figure out for those people, uh, particularly it's like, well, what should I do? Well, you know, well, kind of what do you want to do? And people will say, well, uh, you know, whether well, this thing, which I'm really interested in, but I don't think I can really do that because the world isn't set up that way. Or whatever and then the, the trick is to say well okay but that is the thing you're actually interested in or what what is it you're actually interested in what are the things you know when you think about the things you're doing what are the things that you really like you know if it's a ceo type person 
it's like uh, what aspect of uh, you know running this company do you really like? What things do you not like? Um, and and then how do you amplify the things that you like? And sometimes it's not even obvious what you like and what you don't like. Like for myself, for example, I am. Um, uh, there are things that I've not liked in the past and ended up liking uh, more recently. I mean, I know like educational kinds of things, like the things I'm trying to do here. It turns out I like doing this stuff. Um, I kind of didn't know that back, you know, a few decades ago. Maybe I didn't even like it a few decades ago um, and have grown to like it. Um, similarly, you know, I like things like I, I quite like writing and I like kind of being able to sort of get ideas out there into the world. Um, and those are things that I sort of think about how do I set my life up so that those are things that I can reasonably do and I have a reasonable sort of infrastructure for doing them. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's often sort of a, a, an interesting sort of question of discovery, of self-discovery. What is it you actually like doing? And sometimes it's, uh, sometimes there'll be, uh, you know, the thing to realize is there are different jobs people do. You know, you can CEO, you can be a CEO, you can do software engineering, you can do, you can be an author, whatever else. And each of these jobs has various different facets. And sometimes it's like, well, this is a job and I only like this one facet of this job. You know, I'm really keen on, I don't know, making this, uh, uh, I'm really keen on debugging my software. I don't, you know, that, that's the thing I really, Get a, get a kick out of, of making sure that, you know, the thing works perfectly type thing, whatever it is. And the other aspects of that job, I really don't like much at all. Well, then, you know, the question that you have to ask is, is there a way of refactoring what you're doing so that you're really concentrating on the part that you like? And I, I think that that's, um, uh, for myself, I try to figure that out um, as much as I can. Now, now, the world doesn't always cooperate completely because it's like, you're gonna run a company well, it turns out if you're running a company, there's lots of stuff that's pretty interesting to do. There's some stuff which is going to end up being dropped in your lap that's kind of frustrating to deal with. Um, and that's just part of the part of the story. And, uh, you know, if you shirk that responsibility, it's not going to work out well. Of course, you can try and arrange it so that you bring people in to help you who can generally do those kinds of things. But in the end, you know, like if you're running a company in the end, uh, things are eventually going to fall in your lap um, if, if there's nobody else there to do them. Uh, all right, let me see. We've got a lot of questions here. Uh, there's a question. I keep on looking at the most recent ones, but I'm going to, going to try and take this one from David. How can venture capitalists identify the most talented young entrepreneurs? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I have many friends who are venture capitalists, uh, quite um, top venture capitalists, I would say. And I have to say, I notice a certain kind of cynicism. It's like they see all these pitches. People are coming in. They're pitching them on this company and that company and the other company. And it's like what I usually hear is, in the end, it's just like, well, what do I think of that person? You know, do I think that person has the tenacity the sort of the, the oomph to really make this go. And it's a very kind of people-oriented judgment call. I'm not sure that's always the correct thing. Sometimes, you know, somebody will come in, they've got this fantastic idea, 
and it really seems sounds like a good idea, or at least in their presentation, it sounds like a good idea, but they just don't have a lot of tenacity. They like, as soon as there's a, a roadblock, they're gonna be like, oh, I don't know what to do, I'm stuck type thing. So I, I think what I tend to hear from my friends in the venture capital business are that um, it's like, it's, it's a lot about kind of the tenacity, the, the kind of the oomph, the is it really making sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very two-sided two thing. I mean, like a given person may click with a given venture capitalist because they're kind of on the same wavelength or something and, and not with another one. And it's not the statement that necessarily it's a, you know, there are people where there are plenty of stories of people who've gone to, you know, endless, you know, given endless pitches. And then suddenly somebody says, yes, I'll do it. I'll invest in this thing. And nobody else did. And it turns out to be a big success. And I, I think, uh, I mean, it's a very challenging thing. You know, I do a certain amount of advising of companies and I'm always trying to figure out, you know, am I going to really sign up as an advisor for this company? Uh, you know, one of my criteria is, is the stuff they're doing interesting? Will I learn something from being involved? Do I like the CEO? And then another question is, are they going to be successful? Um, and uh, that's awfully hard to call. I mean, I've been involved in this business for a really long time, and there are just many different paths to success. For example, there can be a company where it's like their technology is kind of lame, but their CEO or the management team is just very, they're very, they're just, just going to bash the world until they succeed. They're going to, you know, they're going to get all those deals. They're going to get all those sort of endorsements. They're going to get, you know, just, you know, bash, bash, bash to get sales. And by golly, they can be successful, even though their technology might seem to me kind of lame. And maybe later on, as they develop more revenue, they kind of backfill and the technology gets better. Or there can be cases where it's like, yeah, that really is a good idea. I, I mean, there are too many of those in my sort of portfolio of companies where it's like, yeah, that's a good idea. You should be able to make a good company out of that. But then they don't. And why don't they? It's for a zillion different reasons. I mean, it's, it's, for, it's because they kind of, they lose their nerve. They like enough people say, oh, this is crazy. And they say, yeah, maybe it is crazy. Or very people-oriented things. There's a group of three founders and they have a big fight for reasons that have to do with, you know, some uh, sort of personal situation having nothing to do with the business. And then the thing blows up. Or, you know, all kinds of crazy things can happen. Or some, uh, you know, key investor has some bizarre misfortune befall them and that sort of derails things. Or, or perhaps it's a strategic investor and there's some change of management at the strategic investor and the new management says, nah, we don't care about this. We're not going to go on supporting this particular thing. Just so many different reasons. And it's, it's really hard to tell. I mean, and I, I would say that, that the frustrating thing is really good ideas, the companies fail, and pretty bad ideas, the companies can succeed. Um, sometimes even without pivoting much, from those bad ideas, just by virtue, I think, of, of sort of the pure sort of tenacity and pushiness of, you know, let's just get deals, let's make sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm just, as I think about it, I'm just thinking of all these examples of, of cases where, uh, you know, even with the same entrepreneur, sometimes a, a pretty good idea will fail, a pretty bad idea can succeed. 
um, because, you know, and sometimes that may be a question of sort of the luck of is there a deal that can be made at that particular moment in time? You know, if you were if you were selling some kind of product that turns out to be really, really useful when there's a pandemic, you could go 100 years without a pandemic and nothing good will happen. But then suddenly there's a pandemic uh, and, you know, and, and you can and you can do very well from it. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, um, okay, there's a question from Coco. What do you recommend for obtaining funding for your new business? I mean, it tremendously depends on what the business is. I would say what you've got to realize is as soon as you get funding from somewhere, that's your boss, so to speak at some level. And for example, with my company that I started in 1986, um, you know, I was fortunate enough that I managed to not have any outside investors. I had made a certain amount of money myself and uh, you know, put that in. And then what I was able to do in that particular case was we had a product where the kind of outline of the product was clear enough and there were enough pieces of the product that were built quite quickly that we were able to go to companies that could be distributors of our product and say, will you sign up to basically give us more or less an advance on, on royalties for distributing our product? And so we managed to basically fund the company through sort of those upfront monies and we didn't have to have any outright investors who own pieces of equity and so on. And at different times, there are different sort of schemes for not having outside investors. You know, you could get government grants, you could get SBIR money in the US or something. I don't know, those, those tend to be often a lot of trouble and very sort of, they constrain a lot what particular thing you're going to do in your business. Or you could be at that moment in history when you can do an ICO as a blockchain company. Um, or maybe you can get some kind of strategic investor, which isn't really an investor. They're really just pre-buying product, which is essentially what, what, what I did. Um, I think when it comes to, uh, as soon as you're, you're raising money, there is an sense, a sense in which you owe the people you got the money from something, and they will sort of expect that they're somewhat your boss telling you what to do. And even though the numbers, even though the percentages may be small, there are just an awful lot of ways that investors, both private and, and more institutionalized investors, sort of exert influence over companies. Now, if you start asking, you know, what, what about different kinds of investors? I mean, there are, there are now a whole sort of spectrum of kinds of investors. Um, oh, and there are other things, other, other, other kinds of ways to, to get money. I mean, there's the, you know, there's the Kickstarter crowdfunding type approach, which for some kinds of projects and products and so on is a fine approach where in a sense, all you owe people is that you make the product and you're not owing anybody. Nobody's owning a piece of equity in your company. And in a sense, all they can tell you, you got to do this is like make the product you said you were going to make. Um, which is, I think, a, a comparatively kind of clean thing. I mean, I think one of the things that can go wrong with investors is they can say, well, yes, you know, last year I thought it was a great idea to go do this. 
but this year I've decided the really the right thing to do is to go do this other thing. They're like, well, no, no, my company was supposed to do that first thing, the thing you originally invested in. Don't tell me to do something new and different. Now they might be right, but but you know it's it's a frustrating thing for the for the entrepreneur to be told, you know, oh the you know. And one of the things that can happen, so, so the different kinds of investors, I mean, there are cases where people are investing their own money and where it's, you know, a high net worth individual, for example, where it's kind of like they are going to make the decision um, and they're going to be, uh, sometimes they'll be quite hands off because they're doing a zillion other things or just because that's the nature of their personality. Sometimes, even if they're quite busy, they will be quite hands on and often quite pushy in saying, you know, this is what you should be doing. I know what I'm talking about, you know, do this. So that's kind of the private investor crowd. Then there's the more professional investor type crowd. And that might be a, a high net worth individual who has a family office. It might be a venture capital firm. Um, it might be uh, uh, some kind of angel investor, um, but people who's, who's where the people you're dealing with, their job is dealing with investments, so to speak as opposed to a high net worth individual who has a whole life that's going on and they just make a few investments on the side type thing. So in terms of the institutional investment kind of mechanism, again, it depends a little bit on the scale of the company. One of the things that can happen is that you're ending up dealing with a, you know, a fancy venture capital firm that has uh, you know, many billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars under management and so on. And uh, the person you're dealing with as the kind of the potentially newbie entrepreneur is a very junior kind of associate uh, who I'm, uh, you know, maybe this is unfair and I, I really honestly haven't dealt with that level of people at venture capital firms much, but I certainly have the impression that there can be a sort of, uh, uh, there can be a certain degree of arrogance. You know, I just went to Harvard Business School and I know everything. And just because you've been working in this industry for 20 years, it's irrelevant. You know, I'm the, the, uh, the young chap with the money, so to speak, and I just went to this fancy business school and I can tell you exactly what to do. And, you know, maybe sometimes they have good ideas, but I think quite often um, it's kind of a, a, a tiresome thing for the entrepreneur to deal with. Now, you know, another question is, what if you take your idea to a zillion investors and they all say no? Does that mean it's a bad idea? Well, it might. It might not, but it might. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think is tricky is if you're not experienced at sort of coming up with ideas and, and making companies work and so on, uh, it is, you know, people might tell you that's a bad idea and 20 people might tell you that's a bad idea. And by golly, they might be right that it's not a good idea. Um, and, uh, or they might all just be, uh, you know, not be right. And that's a tricky thing to parse out. I mean, you know, the worst thing is when you have an idea that has significant innovation associated with it, it is very hard for people to assess that. And I know, you know, people show me kind of innovative ideas, products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with considerable frequency. And I, I think I do pretty well at figuring out, yeah, this is a good idea or no, this isn't a good idea. Sometimes I'm overly optimistic. Sometimes I'm overly pessimistic. Um, sometimes it's like, uh, I'm thinking one I just was looking at yesterday, actually. Um, the, uh, it's kind of like, well, as I start thinking about it, you know, it's a complicated question. 
you know, people could respond this way to it, or they could respond that way. It's really hard for me to tell because it's not something which is plugging into an existing, oh, I know people have this need. Let me just plug in and fill that need. It's something where, well, it's an interesting idea. People could react this way to it, in which case it's a huge win, or they could react in some different way. I mean, it's like good examples of this uh, historically are things like anything to do with the virtual reality, augmented reality space. You know, I started seeing those things in the beginning of the 1990s. And it's like, are people going to react well or not well to this? It turns out they didn't react very well at that time. It kind of came back again more recently. Again, not particularly good reactions. Or it's like things like 3D movies. It's like, you know, that, that, that's been tried for 100 years and people keep on not reacting very well. Now, is that something where it's never gonna work? It's just dead in the water, bad idea. Or is it something to do with the details of the implementation and eventually it's gonna be got right and everybody's gonna be like, oh my gosh, you know, how come this was happening for a hundred years and nobody liked it? You know, people were very short-sighted about that. It's, it's always hard to tell. Um, and I think that um, uh, things that, um, uh, you know, it's, and, and sometimes the other question is, can you even test your product or whatever? Can you go and, you know, uh, talk to a hundred people? The worst thing is you talk to a hundred people, you say, do you want this thing? And they all look at you kind of confused and say, uh, I don't really understand what it is. No, I don't think I want it. Well, that tells you nothing. Like for example, when we were developing Wolfram Alpha, I would talk to people about it. And I don't think anybody said that they wanted it. Um, I think until one could show it as a finished thing and people could actually use it, then they say, oh, that's pretty useful. But when it was just describing it and even showing basic kind of demos of it, it's like, uh, I don't know, what would I use this for? I'm, I'm kind of confused. So you know, that's, a, that's a fairly common thing. So anyway, I think that the, um, uh, I mean, so, sort of addressing the question of how much credence should you put in kind of the people telling you what you're presenting to them is a bad idea. And I think that's very complicated to say. Um, and I think that the, um, and I don't think there's a really a gold standard for, you know, go ask this person. And if they say it's a good idea, it's a good idea. And if they say it isn't a good idea, it's not a good idea. You're, you're not going to find that. Um, and at some level, it's a, it's a, piece of kind of faith on the part of the entrepreneur that uh, you're just going to have to try it. And again, even when you try it sometimes, sometimes trying it on something other than the full scale, again, doesn't really answer the question. And there may be cases, even things we've built, where it seemed like a good thing to build. I thought it was an intellectually worthwhile thing, but turns out for a while, the market just didn't care. And then something happens or just gradual evolution. And then people say, oh my gosh, this is really wonderful. This is really so useful. And it's like, look, we've had this for 15 years, 20 years, whatever it is. And you know, we just, for some reason, the world wasn't ready to absorb that idea. And sometimes you could say, well, that's bad marketing on your part. Why couldn't you get the world to, to adopt it? And again, it's very hard to know sometimes because usually it's important to be able to explain what it is that you have in a fairly short way. Um, but sometimes if it's a sufficiently innovative thing, there is no really good short way to explain it because it's something very different from has existed before. And you just say, you know, 
it's a computational language. You know, it's a full-scale computational language. What is that? You have to explain a bit more before it's not just the words. They don't immediately tell people the whole story of what's going on. Uh, actually, there was a question here from Mikhail. How do you gain internal confidence and believe that what you do is right? Personally, I've been fortunate in that I've done a series of projects in my life that have gotten mostly progressively bigger. Not always. I don't insist that every new project I do should be bigger than all previous ones. That's a spiral that some people get into where they say, look, I did this amazing thing and everything I do now in my life has to be bigger than that or it doesn't mean anything. I don't take that point of view. I take the point of view that is it interesting? Is it worth doing? If it's easy, well, gosh, I might get it done quickly and then that's great. And it doesn't have to be bigger than the thing before, so to speak. Um, but I think an important way to get confidence is to have projects that succeed. I think another thing which I've noticed is, you know, I've been fortunate in my life to go many times from just an idea to a project, product, whatever, that's been sort of a thing in the world that's been somewhat successful. And the, I think that people who've seen that process happen are at a big advantage. Because a lot of people, they see the things that exist in the world, maybe even products we've made, and they say, it just exists. It's been there since the beginning of time. And yes, we kind of know somebody made it, but we, you know, they must have had been, they don't really internalize the idea that there was a day, there was a moment where you sat down and you said, I've got nothing, I'm going to build Mathematica, let's say. And literally you start, it's a blank sheet of paper, these days a blank notebook, um, and you start you know, deciding what you're gonna do. And I think people who have seen that process go from nothing to something, I think everybody gets kind of a, a, um, some sort of a glow having seen that kind of process happen. And I know people who've worked with me, for example, on projects which went from nothing to something, um, the, the, it feels like a lot of those people, the closer they were to the project, sort of the longer the glow lasts, but it's at least a decade, you know, of, of, of seeing how that happens, how you can go from just an idea to, uh, you know, to something real in the world. And I know sometimes it's even better when I know this has happened with my children, for example, they see some idea and I tell them about it. And it's like, they said, that's a stupid idea. And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe. Um, and I try and explain why it isn't a stupid idea. Sometimes I write, it's partly a stupid idea. But anyway, you know, I keep going. And in the end, you know, the thing gets built. And you can kind of see, well, you know, maybe even though it kind of looked kind of goofy at the beginning, it actually turned into something big and not goofy at the end. And that, you know, seeing that process happen is a great way to get confidence that it's possible for that process to happen. Because it's actually a pretty daunting thing to go from nothing to just create a whole structure. Now, you know, for me, this is what I've done for, for decades is go from sort of nothing and create big structures. Um, actually, it's much easier for me to do that. And I know that, you know, when I'm picking projects to do, it's a much easier thing for me to say, let's just build something from scratch. I'm pretty good at that. When it's a let's fit into some existing structure, like a good example of this is when it comes to, I don't know, let's say doing science. And it's like, are we going to just sort of build our own organization for doing some piece of science? Or are we gonna somehow plug in to and, and sort of uh, operate within the plumbing of some existing 
uh, sort of uh, structure of universities or whatever, whatever it is. And for me personally, it's always the better decision is uh, like a good example. Okay, you're, you're publishing a book. Okay, so you know you can either try and fit into the sort of the plumbing of the existing publishing industry, and you know, oh, how does this work with you know promotion and this and that and the other, and how do you how do you connect with all those things? Or you can just say, eh, no, I'm just going to do it all myself. Um, for me, the calculation is essentially always it's better to just do it all myself. Uh, that's not the case for everybody. You know, sometimes there'll be a thing that's already been built that is really worth leveraging. Um, but I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, the idea of, hey, let me just do it all myself is something for which you have to have done that a few times before so that you realize it's not completely crazy to just do the whole thing yourself. Um, you know, you don't have to just plug in. And, and quite a lot of times I've thought, look, this is a domain I don't know much about. Let me piggyback on some existing thing. And I get a certain distance into that. And it's like, no, this is just too much trouble. I am fed up with trying to interface with some organization that's doing this or that thing. It's much easier for me just to do it to myself. And, you know, that, that's the calculation for me. It's different for other people. Uh, question here about uh, cybersecurity for our company. Um, do we do it ourselves or do we have uh, third-party stuff? We, we, we use a bunch of third-party stuff, but we also have a, 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 an internal team. And I would say that one of the things, uh, you know, I, I would like to think that, um, uh, you know, you have to be a little bit intelligent about what the threats really are and you know how how significant they're likely to be. What is particular about your company that might be different from other companies in the way that threats exist, or the kinds of things that threats effects that threats could have? I mean, I think uh, uh, you know there are there are you know if you look back in history, occasionally there will be threats where you know maybe they were more significant for our company than one might have thought, like back in the, in the days of that, um, the whole Unabomber story. It's like, there's somebody who's sending bombs to people. It's like, well, we're just a little company. Why on earth would they target us? And then it turns out the person had been a math professor. So, you know, it was, it was, it turned out there would have been a reason why we would have been specifically singled out. Or like years ago, I remember some distributed denial of service attack. No, maybe not even distributed, just a denial of service attack. And it's like, you know, why did they target us? And then we realized eventually that actually somebody mistyped the IP address of an internet casino and had one digit wrong. And so it had nothing to do with us. They were trying to, you know, extort some internet casino or something. And we just were the off by one digit um, uh, thing. So it, it had nothing to do with us. Um, and I think that the, uh, I mean, I will say that there are things that sometimes you know, like I remember back in the, when was it? Oh, 1989 or so, when the Morris Worm, uh, I somehow always think of Robert Morris, who I knew both before and after that horrible worm incident. Um, the, uh, um, but anyway, when the sort of first internet malware worm came through, um, we were not affected. Why were we not affected? Well, we weren't affected because I had kind of realized there was a sort of a, a potential vulnerability associated with the way that we were connected to the internet. And so I decided that I said, let's just use the weirdest machine we have as our connection to the internet. 
So as, as the actual gateway machine that connected to the internet, this was before modern firewalls and, and these kinds of things. And so the, uh, the thing that, um, uh, that then happened was um, uh, we were using some Japanese strange Unix workstation with a Japanese operating system, and it was just a weird thing. And so the worm had not been compiled for that weird thing. And so we were just fine. It just sort of bounced off and, and went on its merry way. Um, so that was a case where, you know, thinking a little bit, you realize you can, you can avoid certain kinds of uh, vulnerabilities that you might otherwise have. And I certainly think we like to, uh, you know, by being a bit innovative and, and, and you know, uh, sometimes these things bite one. I mean, like, for example, I'll tell a story uh, from many years ago. Uh, when I was developing SMP, my first big uh, software system back in 1979, 1980, I had this bright idea, let's encrypt the source code. And uh, then, you know, idea number two was, let's not use the generic Unix script program because over the course of years, the first thing people will break is the generic Unix script program. Let's make our own uh, encryption system that we use to encrypt the source code because nobody's going to go chase, nobody's going to go uh, go do that. And, and so we made a modified version of the Unix script program. And it was kind of, uh, uh, it took many years, uh, needless to say, the password was lost. And a young fellow a few years ago managed to, managed to break the encryption of that system. And so we got the source code back. But um, that was, uh, was one of these cases where my, my theory had been, you know, the generic Unix script program will be broken first, so don't use that. It's the same thing back in the days when Capture was young. We always used to do kind of uh, weird, uh, mathy, cute captures because we kind of knew that the main systems, the main sort of industrial strength systems that were going to break captures uh, would be deployed against things which were kind of the common captures, not the wacky kind of, uh, uh, you know, had to be a techie company type captures. Um, so, I mean, you know, now, now, by the way, Alexandra is asking this question about cybersecurity and, and uh, um, uh, third party providers and so on. I literally this morning, we were, uh, I was in part three or something of some horrible, why isn't, why is some mail getting blocked? I'll give you an example. I mean, this is that we're using a third party provider for that. Um, and, uh, you know, there are these SPF records that are, uh, send a policy framework records and a bunch of mail gets, uh, which was coming into us, turned out to be getting blocked. And it turns out that, well, yes, we can, um, you know, we are following the actual, uh, the letter of the law, so to speak, on what you should do with a munged SPF record from a, an email sender. But actually, a bunch of surprisingly large organizations have munged SPF records. And what does that mean in terms of whether we should actually block those things or not? And for some reason, that wound up after several iterations kind of on my desk, partly because I'd been bitten by that a, a number of times. And um, so, you know, that, that's a case where we know we didn't build our own filtering system there. We're using a, a third party filtering system, um, although I personally have a bunch of extra systems that I've built um, that, uh, that do particular things there. But so, uh, you know, well, this is one of the issues about, you know, should you use your own software? Should you build it yourself? 
Should you have it be something that's running on your own computers or should you be using a cloud provider? I think my point of view is above some number of employees, you should be running the systems yourself. I mean, unless you have some situation where you have giant peaks of usage, where you need the kind of scale of a cloud provider and you're not gonna own all those machines to take care of those peaks of usage. I mean, I know for example, our cloud and Wolfram Alpha, those are running on our own hardware. We have our own colocation facilities and you know that runs on our own hardware. We uh, were using at various times, we've tried using cloud providers. I mean, people who get private versions of those things often use cloud providers, but for, for us, for the services that we're running ourselves, it just didn't make sense. We know what the ups and downs of usage are through a particular period of time, and it just makes sense to own the hardware. It just doesn't make sense to pay the, the sort of the, the premium for the possibility that there could be a giant spike. I mean, we have various capabilities for dealing with overages, which we uh, you know, really don't expect to use because the statistics of usage are sufficiently uniform that it just isn't that important. And, and particularly nowadays, as containerization becomes more prevalent, and we've got our systems more and more containerized, it's like, well, look, there's a machine somewhere within our own infrastructure that we can deploy this on um, without uh, uh, just you know, deploy its containers there without having to have pre-provisioned the whole thing. Um, so I think that um, uh, this question of, you know, if you're a small enough company, yeah, sure, use cloud services. If you're above some scale where you're gonna have to have you know, system administration people on staff and so on. I, I suspect one is better off using one's own on-premise um, kinds of uh, systems. Now, the place where you really get crazy is when you start building the systems yourselves. And, um, uh, you know, for us, basically the, the, the thing one has to assess is, is the thing we're doing something that, you know, every other company in the universe does, or is it something that we, are doing uniquely or do differently from other people. And so, you know, some systems we use, we're just doing absolutely generic things, you know, accounting systems, things like this. Those are, those are really quite generic. We're not, you know, it, it's, we're no different than a zillion other companies. When it comes to details of how we do, let's say software distribution and so on, well, we've got our own very particular ways of doing that. And so it makes sense for us to build our own systems for, for much of that. Um, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a, um, and for me, one of the frustrating things of, of recent times has been these, you know, supposedly open source systems where we say, well, we'll add in a bit of that in building out this particular piece of our, of our systems. And then it turns out, well, actually, it was very undefined how much that really cost because actually, you know, all the updates started costing an arm and a leg type thing. And that's, that's very frustrating and a reason why it's much easier just buy the thing from an actual company that's selling it really and doesn't pretend that they have some sort of pseudo open source, but actually you can't use it. And actually you're really paying this extra money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think that's both for us as consumers and for us as purveyors of software, I kind of think it's just a much cleaner system. It's just like, you get what you get, you pay for what you, you know, whatever, and there's no kind of hidden weird, well, it might turn out this is whatever. And we've been bitten a few times um, and we're, we're gonna stop being bitten on that of, of, uh, of integrating supposedly open source things that turn out not to be, you know, that turn out in practice to be, um, uh, to be very expensive. All right, maybe a couple more things here. Um, 
Kotov is asking, do we automate testing? Do you test UX? Uh, how do you connect CRM to the model of everything? Okay, automated testing. Of course we do automated testing. We've done that for forever. We have a, a big complicated product on which lots of people rely, including ourselves. And we have a, a large effort in automated testing. You know, one of the things that used to be the case that people would always say, oh, the QA department is at war with the, with the um, development department. I don't know whether people say that anymore, but it never happened for us. You know, we got to the point where development likes the fact that QA is paying attention to what they're doing and making the development better, so to speak. But a big effort, you know, we have a big effort in automated test development. Uh, we run endless automated tests. We're running all these uh, I guess they run all the time and there are, you know, hourly test results and things like this. Um, we do uh, a certain amount of um, sort of the continuous integration mechanism where things can't get checked in until they're tested. Sometimes we're not doing that uh, because it's not a very convenient thing to do for a system of the size that, that we have. Um, we have a lot of complicated testing issues, for example, in Wolfram Alpha. It's hard to do uh, like separated unit tests of pieces of, for example, linguistic understanding, because English is not a very modular thing. So, for example, a typical example, you know, I think there's a, uh, you know, you type in um, uh, something like one day you're typing in 48 cents. And by that, you mean some amount of money. But another day, there will have been some music act that became very popular that's called, you know, 48 cent. And then actually that's the thing that you should interpret as that. And that's a very non-modular thing to test. Um, and so the testing of things like linguistics is pretty complicated. And I mean, over time, you know, the testing of what you actually see on the screen is also complicated because uh, things like, oh, there's a piece of, of graphics and it moved by one pixel, but that's okay. And we developed back, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago now, we developed a bunch of kind of uh, metrics for is it, is it close enough to be okay type thing? And then, you know, we've got a bunch of automation of things like web testing and so on. Actually within Wolfram Language, there's, there's automated control of web browsers and things which we use to test, um, uh, to test those kinds of things. Uh, in the end, there's a certain amount of manual testing that has to be done. We try very hard to reduce that, um, but there's some things where it's, it's, it's good to do that. Now, you know, that's testing. Does the functionality follow the documentation? Does it, you know, are regression tests passing? Is it doing the same now that it did before? Those kinds of things. There's a different test, which is, is what it's doing kind of stupid? And that's a different question. So, you know, for our language design, you know, I'm typically involved in kind of trying to make sure that the functional design of this is a function, this is what it does, that that's sensible. But there are things where there's just a chain of stuff of, you know, there's an installer for some system and it's doing this. And there's a, 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 a workflow that you go through to enable some external connection to this. Does that stuff actually make sense? Or there's a piece of UX flow that is, you know, for creating, for editing a hyperlink or something. Does it actually make sense or is it kind of goofy? And actually, we've just recently refactored a bit how we do that to have a group that is really involved in, um, uh, what do we call them now? We, we keep on, you know, we invent all these new areas and, and we give them names. I think it's a, 
UX quality inspection, I think is the, um, is the term we're using for that. Um, not, that's not my favorite term for that actually. Um, but, but anyway, the idea is for somebody to look at things and just say, does this actually make sense? Not, is this code running the way the code was supposed to run, but does this workflow actually make sense? Or is it kind of goofy? Um, and that's an important thing, which, which I and other senior people in our company have sort of implicitly done for a long time, but we're trying to formalize that a bit more. So that's, that's a little bit on, on automated testing. Um, I mean, in uh, good automated testing is hard. You know, it's something we've put a lot of effort into. And, you know, you can say, well, just run random tests. That's not very sensible. You can be running a lot of random tests and you don't have those corner cases that are the cases that are likely to fail. Now, I personally, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. It's some kind of shamanistic uh, thing. But, you know, I am incredibly good at finding bugs and things. Um, in fact, almost bizarrely good. You know, there'll be, somebody will give me some array of, 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 of cases and I'll click on one of them and it will be one of the two that were wrong. Now, how do I do that? Well, I don't know. It's some, it's some weird piece of personal fortune or misfortune or something because sometimes it's a misfortune because there are things where I just want the thing to work. And, and in fact, I run into a bug, but um, in many, many kinds of systems. Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm typically doing is, it's kind of like, I can see kind of the shape of the thing and I can kind of guess where the corners are and you head for the corners and that's where something will be wrong. Or you head for the thing where it's like, does this fit into that? You know, does this, is this really cleanly thought through? Eh, if not, there'll be a hole there. Or is this kind of a weird case that they won't have thought of? Because it's just, for example, a very common case would be something where there's automated generation of input, where like there's, or something which is the, the, the you know, a mock automated generation of input. There's a thing, okay. Normally that thing gets, you know, one, two, three, four, five inputs because somebody typed them in. But by golly, it could get a million inputs because it came from some other program. What happens if that, if you give it that? Does it just fall over? Um, and I think I remember years ago, not to tell too much of a story, right? My friend Don Knuth with his tech system was offering people, uh, you know, bounty checks for finding bugs. but Essentially, all the bugs that have been found there were found by humans using the tech typesetting system. When we first brought online, this is now 30 years ago, uh, when we first brought online automated generation of input to tech, we just, you know, there were bugs. There, were, there was a whole, like it was, you know, uh, it was like cicadas or something in the, in the um, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was easy to find bugs. Um, and, but because there just wasn't a thing that had been, really part of the testing regimen for that system because it always had human input up to that time. Uh, let's see, there's a question about how do you connect CRM to the model of everything? I'm not sure what that means. I mean, we, we um, uh, I would say that, well, yeah, I'm not sure quite what that means. Um, CRM is customer relationship management, uh, tracking, leads and tracking interactions with people. I, I personally have sort of a way of, you know, I've, I've, I've built up a large network of people I know and people that I correspond with a bunch. 
And for me, the most important thing is just having an archive of the last 32 years of email that I've exchanged with people. That's the probably single most important CRM system for me personally, for our company, we have different kinds of systems. Um, but, uh, uh, and then I, I maintain other lists. And, you know, when I like, who do I know who's relevant for this thing? I try and maintain lists of, of people relevant for different kinds of uh, uh, issues, questions and so on. Um, and uh, I find that pretty helpful. Um, well, let's see, maybe one or two more here. Um, you know, here's one where I'm just going to admit my, my ignorance here. Mikhail is asking, what is better, Kanban or Scrum? You know, I have to admit, I've heard of both of these things. I don't really know in detail what they are. I mean, these are, these are sort of management techniques for projects and managing projects. And I have to say what I find is, and I think a lot of managers in my company find this, everybody has a personality. Every project has a personality. You know, there are ways that are convenient for me to manage things that are very different from the way somebody else would manage even the same project that I'm doing. And there's some people, there's some projects perhaps where, well, by golly, you need a daily report from everybody and you need this and you need that. And that's a good way to move things forward. And there are other projects where it's just a waste of time. People are going to say, uh, you know, they're going to come the next day and they're going to say, I'm doing the same thing I was doing yesterday. And they're going to keep doing that for a month. And at the end of the month, they're going to say, well, I finished what I was doing. It's all good. And it's like you meet them every single day and they tell you they're doing the same thing. It's not very helpful. You know, it depends on timescales for projects. It depends on lots of kinds of things like that. And I find that, you know, in our company, we tend to have uh, monthly reports for people. I find those very useful to, to look through um, as kind of some measure of what on earth is going on, you know, because one of the things that can happen with projects is, you know, you launch a project, you think um, that, uh, um, uh, you know, you think that project is going to take, uh, you know, um, a month. And, you know, then suddenly you realize, oh my gosh, it's been six months. What's going on? You know, something was a lot more difficult about that project than I expected. Yeah, I should say another, another point about um, um, uh, all these sort of scrums and this and that and the other. We have a very good sort of layer of project management in our company, which has sort of grown up over the last 30 years um, of, of people being the ones dealing with the details of moving projects forward and we have project tracking systems and all this kind of thing. I would say that the most significant place where project management is critical is when projects cross multiple silos in the company, multiple groups in the company. When there's a single group and it's doing a project and they've done many projects like it before, they can run, I, I don't know, I think my, the person who's for, how long is it now? At least 25 years, run our algorithm R&D operation um, he, he likes to say he's running project manager lists. Um, and because, you know, in algorithmic project products, in developing algorithmic systems, um, in a sense, they've done that before. He has a pattern for how to do it. He doesn't really need sort of the, the kind of flexible project management. But as soon as one of those projects starts interacting with a whole bunch of other groups at the company, whether it's, you know, graphic design or system administration, or this or that or the other, then they need project management because that kind of coordination 
there's a, a level of knowledge of how to coordinate things across our company that exists in the project management organization that does not exist in individual departments. Individual departments know how to do their work and do it effectively, but they don't have necessarily the expertise about how to interact with this other group at the company that they never had to interact with before because they never had a project that touched that particular kind of area. So I think, um, uh, so I mean, I, it probably tells you something that I don't even know the details of, of how those different um, uh, project uh, management mechanisms work. And I, I don't even know uh, if you polled the managers at, at our company who would say they use, you know, Scrum versus they use this versus they use that? I don't actually know the answer, but kind of interesting to find out. Um, but from my point of view, it's like uh, a manager, it is better to let people manage the way that they naturally manage than to impose on them some kind of corporate standard. The only place where you need sort of the corporate standard is plugging into the global project management effort because then you need some expectations about how your group that's doing your things is going to connect to some other group somewhere else that's doing other things. So let's see, a, a question here, I'm gonna take maybe a couple more here. Um, Alexandra is asking, how do you work with executives when your job relies on long-term thinking and, uh, uh, and doesn't, in, doesn't deal with kind of diving in and understanding how our email system rejects messages and so on? Look, here's my point of view. I, you know, I like to understand how the whole of the machine that is our company works. I don't understand all of it, but I understand it to a pretty reasonable level. Anytime I really don't understand something, I, it often is a thing that isn't going to work so well. You know, I like to be able to dive in and, when necessary, go sort of all the way down to understand what's going on. The you know, there's a complicated trade-off. I've got lots of experience in doing stuff. So some things I might be able to figure them out in five or 10 minutes. And if left to their own devices, whatever group is working on it, it might take them weeks or even months to figure those same things out. At what point does it make sense for me to kind of dive in and spend those five or 10 minutes and save that month or two of work? Well, at that ratio, it typically always makes sense for me to do that. So then you might ask the question, do people who say, well, this is my domain, this is my area, you know, I'm responsible for this thing, you know, I don't want the CEO parachuting in and uh, telling me what to do. So I used to take the point of view that that was how people would feel. It turns out in my experience, it's not how people feel. It's actually quite different from that. It's like, if there's some area where it's like, okay, the you know, first question is, does the CEO care about what it is I'm doing off in some corner of some corner of the company? Well, by the time one's parachuting in to go try and you know, troubleshoot something there, then the answer to that question is, yes, the CEO cares about that. Now, does the person feel like, oh my gosh, I should have been able to do this myself? Well, sometimes they do. After you, know, you say, you, know, you come in and you say, well, what about this? Do you think of that? Do you think about that? And the person says, oh my gosh, I should have thought of that. Okay, that's the way it goes. Then they learn something and then the next time round they think of that. I mean, for example, when it comes to debugging systems, uh, both, both technical and human systems, and something went wrong. In fact, a meeting just two before this one, we, it came, came to light that something had gone wrong. 
and um, the uh, um, with something um, um, uh, that um, um, the um, uh, and so the question is, I always want to know what went wrong, whether it's a technical system or some kind of management failure. It's like because I've been building up this inventory for 40 something years of things that can go wrong. And so when I see a new thing that happens, I'm kind of playing back that inventory of all the previous things I knew that went wrong. So when somebody says, okay, we, you know, there's this nasty bug and we eventually fixed it, I always say, what was the bug? Because I want to know, because the next time something happens, five years from now, whatever, it'll be like, well, I remember we had this situation with whatever, and it, you know, I'm thinking it was that or I even will say, we had this situation and this is what happened. Have you checked this thing now? Um, and uh, and that's, that's a really useful kind of uh, piece of knowledge to build up. Okay, so I'm, I'm just maybe one more here. Um, oh, there's so many of these. are very interesting questions you guys are asking. It's a question from Alex here. How did you overcome the hurdles of being a solo founder? Oh boy, I mean, you know, in my first company, Back in 1981, I was not the solo founder and it was very frustrating. So I have to say in, um, I mean, a, a bunch of people in my current company, you know, 35 years ago, a bunch of people, uh, you know, I, I had a bunch of people working with me, um, but I was definitely the one in charge, so to speak. And some of those people still work with me, which is great. Um, but uh, the, I think that, um, uh, for me, with my particular maybe personality, perhaps skills, I don't know, it's a lot easier for me to be the solo founder and just be like, I'm going to do, you know, I'm making the decisions, let me move forward, rather than, hey, let's derive a consensus and, and move forward based on that. Just happens to be my personality. For other people, it's like a lot easier to, um, uh, um, to take the point of view that... Um, um, uh, like to be, you know, a group of people who are kind of collectively going to help develop their sort of confidence to move forward. I mean, I suppose for me, for better or worse, I've had sufficient internal confidence that doesn't really help me to have somebody else that I can kind of say, oh yeah, you know, is that, um, uh, is that okay? Now, you know, that is not to say that I don't like working with people. I, I really like working with people. Um, but in terms of do I, am I concerned about the fact that I'm ultimately going to make the decision? No, I'm not. It's much easier for me personally to do that than it is to be like, well, do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? You know, and we all have to come to consensus about it. Um, there's a question from Alexander about cybersecurity. How do we address the risk of supply chain attacks since our language is used by other companies? Obviously, that's one of the many reasons why we take these kinds of things seriously because our system gets used by a great many companies in the world and other organizations in the world. Um, we are primarily, we are producing systems that get embedded in other people's systems. We're not managing services for other people. So, which is a slightly different situation. So we're not, most of the time, I mean, some of our business involves managing services for other people, but most of it, and particularly the more critical kinds of cases, it's mostly we make the tools, other people deploy the tools in their environment. So it's a slightly less, uh, less kind of extreme case. But yes, this is obviously something we worry about and, uh, and take really seriously. 
and touch wood, thank goodness, we haven't had any, any disasters yet. Long may that continue. I mean, we think we're pretty careful, but you know, it's, uh, it's a challenging thing. Um, okay, one last question from Joe here. Um, okay, so the question is, uh, he says, a friend of his is starting a company in the healthcare software space and wants, person asking a question, Joe, to leave his PhD program and help him co-found the company. What criteria would you use to judge whether that's a good idea? Um, you know, I think there are several points. One is there's a fork in the road, so to speak, and how serious is that fork? That is, you leave your PhD program. Can you say to the, your PhD program, hey, I'm going to take a one-year break, six-month break, whatever? Or is it that your PhD program is one where you're kind of on a, on a conveyor belt and if you, you know, on a, on, a, on a train, if you get off, you'll never be able to get back on again? I mean, that's, that's one thing. I, I don't think it's necessarily, uh, in terms of, of how do you assess whether there can be success in that area, um, the, um, um, uh, you know, whether, whether somebody can make a success out of a company, it's really hard to say. I mean, to some extent, it's how much control do you have over that success? You know, there are many people who join, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking there are many people who worked at our company for a number of years, you know, five or six years. Then they say, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley. I'm going to join these startups and they're going to go fantastic. And I, I know many examples of people where they went through five startups and every single one failed. And then in some cases, they come back to our company and uh, they're like, hey, this is pretty nice. We don't have to, you know, that this is, this, is this is a good thing, so to speak. But, you know, it's like those people, they went to those startups, they didn't really have control of whether the startup succeeded or failed, because they were just, you know, a person three levels down in the management hierarchy, and they were doing their job, they may have done a fantastic job, but the wrong decisions may have been made, the market might not exist, the investors might have gone crazy, a zillion different reasons the company might have failed. So I think it's a different story, if you are a, a sort of serious co-founder of a company, versus where you have real control over the outcome versus you're more of a, a sort of a, a, a lower uh, in the tree person. Now, you know, if you're going to have real, real uh, control over the outcome, there's a question, uh, you know, that relates to being solo founders, not being solo founders. You know, is the person who's starting the thing actually going to listen to you? Do you think you know what you're talking about, about whether it's a good idea or not? What, um, uh, I mean, I think a good you know, one thing that always helps in terms of looking at companies and, and what's going to happen is, did they already raise money? If they already raised money, they may have, you know, three years of money in the bank. Um, and so something is going to happen for three years, even if it doesn't eventually, you know, take flight and, and succeed, at least the thing isn't going to implode in that short of time. And I think it, it's, it's then, will you learn things that you want to learn and you know, you take your one year out of doing your PhD program, and maybe you have to just quit it altogether, and, and maybe there's no way back. But I kind of suspect, in most cases, there's a way back, so to speak. Um, and uh, uh, particularly, there's probably a way back if you if you don't worry so much about the you know the funding from the grant, because you say, well, I will have worked for a year in this company, and I will have gotten paid there. If you're getting paid there. And then maybe I don't worry so much if I'm not getting paid as much in my graduate program, or whatever else, because that's my kind of, uh, you know, that's that's my my way to get back there. But I think in um, uh, you know in, in in terms of 
of what, um, you know, well, another thing, okay, if I was personally in the situation, the thing I would do is I would say, I listen to the business plan, look at the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does this actually make sense to me? In other words, can somebody explain to me why this is going to work? And not just uh, kind of, you know, your friend is very clever and you're sure that, and they say, I've done all the research, it's going to work. But can you understand, can, can you make an argument? If somebody else said to you, explain to me why this is going to work, can you yourself kind of make that argument? And do you understand why it's going to work or isn't going to work? And my criterion, which is probably very, uh, in a sense, a very arrogant criterion is, if I don't understand it, I don't believe it. And so it's kind of like, can you actually understand yourself how this company is going to work? If the answer is yes, well, okay, then, then you're, you're sort of, you're depending on yourself. You're, you're, you're using your own judgment to decide what to do rather than just somebody told you it's going to work. So, you know, so take the point of view, it's going to work. Those would be some of my criteria at least, but it's, it's hard to know without knowing more, more details of the situation. And um, uh, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, another thing you could say is, well, has the person who's starting the company, have they done it before? You might think if they've done it before, their probability of success will be higher. I'm not sure that's always true because sometimes people did it the first time and they really put their all into doing it. The second time around, they're like, eh, this is easy. I know how to start a company. It's all, it's all good. And they don't put their all into it. And it turns out they needed to put their all or it wasn't going to work. So having done it before tells you something but it doesn't actually, uh, it doesn't fully answer the question. And I think I need to go here. And um, thank you very much for, for lots of interesting questions. And I'd be happy to take more of these up um, when we do the next one of these um, uh, sessions. And uh, for now, bye. See you another time. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.